Okay, well, hello friends. It is uh, a little early, I know, for some of you. It is 3 o'clock p.m. Central Daylight Time here in Tyler, Texas. And no, my watch isn't broke and my clock isn't broke. Um, yes, this is about an hour earlier than what we have been doing this uh, study on the Book of Acts. And so I hope that a few of you who have been following uh, me and have been, and been uh, participating in these studies uh, will be able to join us. Um, I have moved it up one hour, so sorry about the confusion on that, but this is where we'll stay uh, for a while as we begin these studies at 3 p.m. instead of 4 p.m., which means that we'll be finished at 4 p.m. instead of 5 p.m. if I have all of my math right and if Bill is able to finish up in time. Both of those are very problematic. Um, as you know, we've been going through the Book of Acts uh, this summer. Uh, earlier this year, uh, we did a study through the Book of Matthew, through the Gospel of Matthew, and so have followed it up with the Book of Acts and are now today in chapter 22, which is a very a significant chapter. I know, I know, you hear me say that every week, right? Yeah, I get that. I get that. So I realize that uh, that is true, but this one is a very significant chapter uh, because it is uh, one of three places in the book of Acts where we hear the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And I think that is a, a very significant, a very significant thing. I know we're going to have some uh, folks uh, uh, joining us along the way. If you care to make a comment like uh, my cousin Gail just did. Great to see you, Gail. Hope that my cousin Keith Allen is doing well and all your family. Uh, nice to see you popping in and saying hello. Others will be popping in and some will say hello, like Cindy and Eric Mosley always say hello. And that's always brings a, uh, just joy to my heart to see your names on there and others will as well. Um, and for some, they'll, uh, they'll pop in at 4 p.m. here in an hour and think, wow, Bill's already done. What happened there? Uh, but that's okay because this uh, study is uh, being shown live right now uh, between the 3 and 4 o'clock hours uh, in Tyler, but will also be on my page, and you can uh, listen to that and watch that at any time. I uh, always put it on our West Irwin Church of Christ Facebook page as well. I think uh, it gets transferred a little bit later to some other places, especially our westerwin.com website under social media and resources. You click on our live streaming uh, link there and scroll down to where it says video archives and you can see all kinds of wonderful things such as our previous Sunday services, my previous sermons, and these devotionals. These uh, uh, let devotional lessons that I do, Bible studies that I do like I've been doing in the book of Acts. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a great blessing to have this technology, especially now while many are uh, sheltering at home. Uh, most all of us have seen our activities um, really decreased outside of our home, even if uh, some of us do uh, go to work or uh, go out to uh, uh, the grocery store or the doctor's office or to see some family, um, maybe to go out to eat somewhere where they have indoor dining and are socially distanced. Uh, all of those things are great, but um, 
I understand that we are still in the midst of this uh, pandemic. I saw an article uh, this morning from Ed Stetzer, who is a wonderful, wonderful writer with uh, Christianity Today and has his, has a, um, a website, the, the Exchange, that he has uh, published his great articles associated with Christianity Today, and uh, just a terrific writer. And he was speaking about um, uh, how churches are beginning to open more and more. Our church has been meeting uh, live for quite some time um, after being shut down for uh, seven weeks. Uh, and this past Sunday, we had 168 in attendance, which is wonderful. Uh, many more than that online, including some of you likely, and that's a great blessing as well. Um, and, uh, and so we're hoping that that number will continue to grow and increase. We're trying to be very conscious of what we need to do, uh, asking our people to uh, wear masks while they're entering and leaving uh, the auditorium and the, the facility until they get to their pew, and then they can take their mask off uh, during worship if they like, uh, and then have it back on when they're leaving. And we're doing individual communion cups. We are uh, have our um, some of our wonderful staff members have have taped off the pews so that we have uh, staggered pews for seating and uh, uh, not uh, seating on every row, but seating on about every other row with the with the uh, seating area staggered. Um, all of those things, we have hand sanitizers in the foyer and all of those things are important for us to, uh, to be able to do and to meet in a healthy and safe way. And so far, God has blessed us. And I know everyone has been touched with family members or friends or coworkers um, that they're aware of who have uh, had this, uh, this disease and we want it to uh, go away. We don't want it. We don't want to contribute to the spreading of it, and certainly not to those who are especially vulnerable. So, uh, I appreciate everyone doing that. As Ed Stetzer was interviewing uh, the Surgeon General of the United States, uh, he had that article this morning in the Exchange on Christianity Today, and and the Surgeon General said, "Well, I'll tell you." Uh, uh, he told him, "You know, what could you tell us about the best way to go about doing this as we?" open up and become more and more, uh, have more people coming. And he says, well, three things. It's the same three things. Uh, practice socially distancing, which is uh, practice social distancing, keeping uh, six feet apart from each other. Uh, wear a mask uh, when you are going to be in close contact. And when you're around other people, it's always good to do that. And, uh, and, and continue to wash your hands uh, with soap for 20 seconds. And to do that, uh, regularly, and and the Surgeon General said, if we can do those three things, we can get a much better grip on this. So I hope that everyone uh, is doing their best uh, to do those things, and we continue to pray. We continue to pray. Uh, so it's it's good that uh, you have found me here at uh, a little bit earlier than normal, but this will be the new normal. Aren't you tired of that term? I am. Uh, but this is what it'll be. We'll go from three to four Central Daylight Time, and I hope that you'll be able. Uh, to join us. My dear friend and sister Wanda Weathers has said hello. Uh, hello uh, to you, Wanda. What a great blessing uh, you are to me and to Joyce and to so very many others. Um, so we're in Acts chapter 22, and uh, we're, we have seen Paul finish his third mission journey, as we call it, in the previous chapter on Tuesday in Acts chapter 21. Uh, that had been as uh, his, his trips had always been, the first, second, and third a very momentous and uh, incredible experiences that, that went on. We saw great things happen 
with Paul and Barnabas establishing churches in modern-day Turkey and um, uh, ordaining elders in those churches as they traveled back to Antioch of Syria. On the second mission journey, we see the Macedonian call and the baptism and circumcision of Timothy, and he joins Paul and Silas, his new partner, um, on this second journey. They hear that Macedonian call, go across the sea into uh, modern-day Greece and uh, baptize that wonderful woman, Lydia, and her family, uh, that incredible faithful man, the Philippian jailer, as we call him, from Acts 16, and his family and the church at Philippi uh, has begun, and the church in Europe, according to Luke's record, has begun, and a, a great history of Paul with that church. Uh, we're studying through the book of Philippians, just started this past Sunday uh, at 4 p.m. right here on my Facebook page. Uh, 4 p.m. Central Time, and uh, a little bit shorter lessons than our Tuesday-Thursday Bible studies. Uh, that one is intended to go about 30 minutes so that you can be able to hit some other things at 5 p.m., including a couple of Zoom classes that our uh, wonderful ministers here offer at 5 p.m. as well, uh, and then is replayed on our website at 6 p.m. Um, uh, Sunday night. But that's a study of the book of Philippians. Paul leaves Philippi, goes to Thessalonica, gets run out of town, goes to Berea. The Thessalonian Jews hire their rent-a-mob gang, and they come and run him out of, out of uh, Berea as well, even though the people of Berea uh, searched the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was so. That great passage of scripture in Acts 17. Um, and then uh, he goes to the southern portion of modern-day Greece, the province of Achaia, just south of Macedonia, uh, where the churches of Corinth and Athens are established. And uh, great experiences that Paul has there, a wonderful vision in Corinth in spite of all the sexual immorality that was there. And then in the midst of all of those altars to all of those gods that aren't gods at all, uh, Paul begins right there uh, to that with that altar to an unknown God and declares to them the one true and living God in that incredible sermon uh, to, in Athens in Acts chapter 17 on the Areopagus. What a great, great experience. And, uh, and so a, a lot of great things uh, that we've seen already in the second journey. In the third journey, we see Paul uh, just really having a, a, a difficult time and spending uh, quite a bit of time in Ephesus and, and having um, a, a lot of trouble, uh, that, that huge riot and um, uh, just his life taken, uh, almost uh, taken away from him. Uh, but God continues to be with him and God continues to provide for his salvation. And so on the way back, he calls for uh, the elders from that church at Ephesus after, on his return part of that journey. Um, and uh, meets them on a little island off the coast of modern-day Turkey and has that emotional meeting with them in Acts chapter 20, calling on them to shepherd or feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Uh, continues to go on his way in chapter 21, uh, gets to uh, Caesarea, uh, that important headquarters and administrative center for the Romans in the first century Roman Empire, uh, uh, on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and then uh, goes from there up to Jerusalem and meets with James and the uh, apostles and elders, leaders of the church, and is promptly arrested. And so now we find him in Acts chapter 21 at the end of that great uh, passage, uh, having the opportunity to defend himself. <clears throat> and here's how Paul is going to do that. He's going to defend himself by telling 
not just the story, but telling his story. And I think as we read through these, uh, this, this uh, chapter in Acts chapter 22, I hope that you will be able to see that when you are asked about your faith uh, and to defend why you are a Christian, then this is a great example of exactly what to do. It is to tell the story by telling your story. Um, in Acts chapter 21, at the end of that chapter, beginning in verse 37, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? <laughs> and the commander says, so you speak Greek? And actually, Paul spoke very fluent Greek. He was a very learned man, educated man, uh, a leader in the Jews until he became a Christian and then a leader in the church. Um, and so he converses with the, uh, with the commander in, uh, in Greek and asks him if, if he can uh, address the people. He is a Jew from Tarsus, a very significant city. He is a Roman citizen. Uh, later, he'll use that to his advantage to appeal uh, to the emperor Caesar. Um, but the commander gives him permission uh, to speak. And so Paul uh, begins his defense at the end of Acts chapter 21. And now not speaking in Greek, but speaking in uh, the ancient Aramaic part of the Old Testament, a small part, not much, mostly a, a, a language of the exile and further on. Most of the Old Testament written in Hebrew, some in Aramaic, and um, uh, Paul is speaking to them now in the common knowledge, uh, a common language of the Jews. And so that's where we begin in Acts chapter 22. And here Paul defend himself and basically hear him tell his story. Luke has recorded the events that he's about to tell us uh, about uh, earlier in Acts, in Acts chapter 9. That's in the narrative. That's Luke recording what happens to Saul of Tarsus, this man who was a leader of the persecution of the church, uh, trying to defeat Christianity, uh, seeing them as being blasphemers because they were saying that this, this man who was convicted as a criminal and was crucified, cursed by being hanged on a tree, is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited descendant of Abraham and King David to sit on his throne. And, and for Paul, that was unfathomable. And he was just as angry with them as the Jewish leaders were when they crucified Jesus for calling himself uh, the Son of God. And so uh, as we see Paul uh, uh, coming on and, and as Saul of Tarsus trying to uh, defeat the church, uh, he comes face to face with Jesus. Luke records all of that in Luke chapter 9. Paul will tell this story again in chapter 26 when he stands before uh, the governor uh, Festus and King Agrippa and his uh, sister. And, that's, and this is all uh, part of God's plan. And, and it's a great, great example for us of, uh, of someone telling the story uh, by telling your own story. Um, so, Acts chapter 22, uh, beginning at verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, brought up in Jerusalem. Paul being very familiar uh, with the goings-on in Jerusalem. I've wondered at times if he ever was around Jesus of Nazareth. They were perhaps five years apart in age, 
and I just wonder if, if he was ever around him, there's no indication that he was. Uh, their paths, it seems, didn't cross until the event that Paul talks about here. Um, brought up in this city in Jerusalem, I studied under Gamaliel. We've seen him earlier take the lead and the role in the beginnings of the early church uh, as they were considering what to do about this group. Uh, Gamaliel speaks to them about that in earlier, uh, in, uh, earlier in the book of Acts. Um, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today, and boy, was that ever true. Verse 4, I persecuted the followers of this way, that he refers to the church as, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Remember, we first meet Paul as Saul of Tarsus uh, in uh, Acts chapter 6 and 7 and 8 when, when um, Stephen is chosen as one of those seven men in Acts chapter 6. And then in Acts chapter 7, his great sermon is recorded in and this great history of the Jewish people and the Jewish law and the Jewish nation in, uh, in Acts chapter 7. And then he applies it. And as the old saying goes, he leaves preaching and goes to meddling. And he tells them, look, you are, you are just like your ancestors. They put to death the prophets, and now you have put to death the Messiah. You have put to death the Christ, the anointed one, the one who was to come, the one that Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Uh, the one who David looked to and said, you will not abandon my soul in Hades. Uh, the one who would be that descendant of Father Abraham and who would sit on the throne of King David forever. Uh, now Stephen said, you have killed him. And Peter had said the same thing in Acts chapter 2, uh, less than two months after it, all of those events had happened. Uh, Stephen says that and is put to death. He is stoned to death right then and there by that angry Jewish mob. And they laid their uh, coats at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was there, uh, Luke records, approving of what was going on. He gave his go-ahead that they should put this man to death. From then on, in Acts chapter 8, it is Saul of Tarsus who is the point man for the persecution, for those who were trying to do away with the way uh, this uh, Christian uh, teaching, this um, blasphemy, as Saul of Tarsus would have said, of naming this man crucified as a criminal by the Romans between two thieves, um, that they would say that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Uh, Saul couldn't handle it, and he did everything in his power to defeat them, and that's what he says here. I, I was there. I was persecuting per people. I was there when they were beaten and jailed, and I was approval. I was approving of, of those who were put to death. And he said, and then I got letters from the, the people right here, from this Jewish ruling council here in Jerusalem. And they'll testify to it. It's true. I got letters from them so that I could go to neighboring cities and try to find more uh, of these Jews who had named themselves as followers of Jesus and uh, calling him uh, the Messiah and Lord, and I wanted to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be tried and punished uh, as blasphemers according to our law. 
But then something happened. Verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse 8. Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Um, Saul had no idea who this was, as we saw in Acts chapter 9. Jesus stops him on the road to Damascus before he ever gets to town. And there's a great light. He hears the voice of the Lord Jesus, but he has no idea who it, who it was. Why? Because he thought he was in the right. He was doing this, and he would say later, very genuinely, very sincerely, zealously doing what he thought was right. But you see, passion and zeal are not enough. They're not enough because they can be misguided and you can go the wrong direction. In fact, Paul says that very thing as he's talking about his Jewish brethren in that great passage of Romans 9 through 11. And he says, look, I'll, I'll tell you about my Jewish brothers. They, they have great zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. You can have zeal and be wrong. And that's what Saul of Tarsus was. Um, he was 100% committed to it, but he was committed to the wrong thing. And he was committed uh, to this horrible, horrible sin of cruelly and violently trying to destroy the people of God. And, um, and so Jesus stops him dead in his tracks. Why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I preached a sermon series a while back here at West Irwin and Tyler about all those instances in Scripture where someone's name is stated and then repeated, such as Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Abraham, when he is about to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God in Genesis 22. God stops him at the last minute. Abraham, Abraham, he says. That was a fun series for me. I hope that you enjoyed it if you were able to, to be a part of it. It's probably somewhere on our website, perhaps. Um, but here is one of those instances. There aren't very many, really. But here's one of them. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responds the only way he knows how. He has no idea who this is. Why? Because he thinks he's in the right. He doesn't think he's persecuting God at all. He thinks he's doing the will of God, exactly what Jesus had told his disciples would happen. In uh, places like John 16 and other places, Matthew 10, Jesus says, hey, people are going to put you to death thinking that they're serving God. And that's exactly what Saul of Tarsus was doing, or so he thought. And Jesus stops him. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And then the words come, I am Jesus of Nazareth, verse 8, whom you are persecuting. And don't you know Saul's heart just sank? Uh, don't you know he just saw his whole life flash before him right then, thinking of all of those people that he had hurt, all of those people that he had arrested, all of those people that he had had beaten or even killed, that, that martyr Stephen, who as he was, life was draining from him, himself said, I see heaven open and, and the Son of Man standing right next to the Father, watching on, and, um, and, and just infuriating Saul and the others even more until his last breath was taken. I'm sure he thought about all those things when he hears this voice utter those words, I am Jesus of Nazareth, 
whom you are persecuting. And then Saul asks the next question, which is the only right question at this point. What shall I do, Lord? He said, verse 10. His companions saw the light. They didn't hear the voice. Saul did. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. And in chapter 26, when we get there, there's going to be a little additional part to that where Jesus adds, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. I've been goading you, Saul, to try to turn to me, and you keep kicking at it uh, like a stubborn ox. And, um, and um, Paul records that. He says that in his defense, in his speech before King Agrippa in Acts 26. Here he says, um, I am... Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting, what shall I do, Lord? What do I do? Saul believed very strongly at this point. Obviously, he had seen the Lord. Um, and so now the question was, okay, what now? Because there was more to do to respond in faith. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, the capital of, used to be the capital of Syria, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Go into the city. Jesus doesn't tell him the answer to his question. Paul says, what do I do? What do I do? And Jesus says, well, you believe. That's good. I'm glad you do. There's more to do. And I'm not going to tell you right now, but I want you to go into the city and you'll find out. Why? Because he needed to wait. He needed to wait. And Luke, in Acts chapter 9, Luke tells us that he waited three days and three nights. And he was praying and he was fasting. And so we see that Paul believed very strongly, obviously. He'd seen the Lord. Who wouldn't believe? Um, and, and he also repented because he was praying and fasting for three days, waiting for Ananias to come. Uh, and you know, I mean, Jesus had, had told him, I, I'm, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Uh, and so he knew that he was as good as dead, unless, unless this Lord who had appeared to him could forgive him somehow. Verse 12 of Acts 22. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Uh, and, I, and we don't get this in, in Acts 22, but Luke records it in Acts chapter 9. That fun story of good old brother Ananias. I love that guy. He's so much like me. God, Jesus comes to him and he says, I want you to go find this man by the name of Saul because he's been praying and I want you to give him the message I have for him. And Ananias says, I don't know about that. I'm not sure that you want to send your old buddy, old pal Ananias over there. This guy is bad news. This guy is bad. I mean, he is bad. And I don't think you really want to send Ananias there. And Jesus says, oh, don't, don't worry. He's going to suffer a lot and I want you to tell him that. But for now, you go. And, uh, and so we pick up the story uh, with Paul in verse uh, 13, after he says, uh, an Ananias, a devout observer of the law, verse 12, highly respected by all the Jews, he came to me. He stood beside me, verse 13, and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, verse 14, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, Jesus, and to hear words from his mouth. Not everybody had that blessing. Not everybody had that vision. Not everybody had that calling. But Saul of Tarsus, this man who would be the least likely candidate for you to sit down and have a Bible study with, 
He received that message from the Lord. You will be his witness, verse 15, to all people of what you have seen and heard. Just like Jesus said in Acts 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He's calling Saul of Tarsus to do the same thing. Ananias tells him, you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. Verse 16, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. This passage is just amazing when you think about all of the instances of the response of faith in the book of Acts. The answer to that question, what do I do? We've, we heard it asked and answered uh, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when Peter responded to those people who had been actively involved in, in the taking of Jesus' life, uh, telling them to repent and be baptized everyone in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Here, Paul himself asks, what do I do, Lord? And Jesus tells him, go into the city, you'll find out. And Ananias comes to him and says, look, God's got plans for you. But now, verse 16, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. You know, Scripture says in other places, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What exactly does that mean? Does that mean just saying the words, Jesus, Jesus? The Lord himself in Matthew chapter 7 said, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those people in Acts chapter 2, they believed strongly because here were all these witnesses. They had heard the stories. These men had seen the resurrected Christ. Some of the women there had seen the resurrected Christ after he was dead. Some of them were talking about how he ascended into heaven. And now, Peter puts it all together for them, and they believe. They're cut to the heart, convicted of their sin, Acts 2, uh, verse 37 says. And then they ask, what do we do? And the answer comes back to repent. They didn't know to repent. They had to change their lives. They already believed. They had to change their lives and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Here, we know Paul believed. He saw Jesus face to face, the resurrected Lord. We know that he repented. He'd been praying and fasting for three days, and yet his sins had not been washed away. Yet he had not fully called on the name of the Lord. And so here's the question. Can a person be saved without having their sins washed away? Can a person be saved without calling on the name of the Lord? And yet when Ananias comes to Saul of Tarsus, this very faithful, zealous man who now was convicted of his own sin, convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the Son of God. Penitent, so sorrowful over all of his sins that he had been praying and fasting for three days. And yet Ananias comes to him with these words, What are you waiting for, Saul? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on the name of the Lord. There's nothing sacred about baptism. There's nothing special and magic in the water or in that act, what makes it special is the fact that Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. That's what makes that special. Peter in 1 Peter 3 says, look, without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is just like taking a bath. But baptism, Christian baptism is not taking a bath. It is the quest, the desire, the pledge, the journey towards a good conscience before the Lord. Um, here Saul is told, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. 
And so then Saul continued, Paul continues in verse 17, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Verse 19, Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's the message that Ananias had told them as well in chapter 9. You're going to be my witness to Jew and Gentile, to, to the, the king and the pauper. You're going to tell the story everywhere, Saul. And neither Saul of Tarsus nor Ananias the Christian, uh, the evangelist who converted Saul, obviously Jesus had a strong hand in that, uh, Ananias who baptized him, they didn't have any idea what was ahead for, for the Apostle Paul, but now he knows. He's been through three mission journeys. He's seen his life uh, almost taken on many occasions. He's been beaten and flogged and, and put in jail and, and is now threatened again by his own countrymen, by the Jews right here in Jerusalem. And, and, uh, and when he's telling his story and, and uh, the Lord tells him, look, I, I want you to leave. I want you to, to get out of here because people are going to try to kill you. Um, it's like Saul is saying, well, Lord, where am I going to go? They, they know about me everywhere. And Jesus says, it's okay, I'll go with you. I'll go with you, and you're going to tell the story. And that's what Paul has done here. He has told the story. He has defended his faith, but he's told his story uh, in order that people might hear the story. Well, what's the response? Well, let's read about that. Then I'd like to share with you about my story. Verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. When he started talking about, oh, let's reach out to the Gentiles, that's, that's when he lost him. <laughs> this wasn't Athens. Uh, this was Jerusalem. And these were the Jewish leadership. And they didn't have any desire whatsoever uh, for uh, this outreach to the Gentiles that Paul, uh, first with Barnabas and then with Silas and Timothy and others, had been really devoting his life to going to the synagogue until they rejected him, and then going to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But that's exactly what Jesus had said was going to happen, even before Cornelius was baptized in Acts 10, when Saul of Tarsus was converted in Acts 9. Jesus was already planning uh, what he would do with this, this man who would become the Apostle Paul. Well, when he says, I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles, that was it. They raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. And this mob becomes very similar to the mob that stoned Stephen to death and that crucified uh, Christ. Verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And the answer to that question is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. 
The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. The commander himself wasn't born a citizen. He had to buy it. He had to pay for it, and he did. But for Paul, his again, he was from a very important city, the city of Tarsus, and his parents were Roman citizens, and so Saul himself was born a Roman citizen. That's a big, big deal in the first century Roman Empire. Verse 29, those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. <laughs> the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. He was in trouble and he knew it. He was about to flog this guy. He was about to get himself into very deep trouble. Uh, and thankfully, Paul spoke up and saved himself, but also saved uh, these uh, Roman authorities. Verse 30, the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought, brought Paul uh, and had him stand uh, before them. And that will be chapter 23 next week, where we take it up and where Paul is, is uh, asked to defend himself once again and uh, uses a little bit of ingenuity to try to turn everybody against uh, themselves in the crowd and at least get some people on his side. Um, and But that's for next Tuesday. Let's not get away from Acts 22 just yet. Again, Luke not, Acts chapter 9 is where Luke records the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Acts 26 and this chapter, Acts 22, Luke records Paul himself telling his own story. Paul would tell his story again at other places, such as in Philippians chapter 3, when he talks about his history and his heritage and how he gave all of those things up because he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Uh, that was more important to him than anything else, uh, he says in Philippians 3. In 1 Timothy 1, he calls himself the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, as he talks about how much he persecuted the church. But then he also says, and yet Jesus was merciful for, to me. God had mercy upon me, and he called me a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He forgave me. And by doing so, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, if he can forgive the worst of sinners, he can forgive anyone. He can forgive you. Why does Saul do that? Why does Paul do that? Well, he does that to tell his story. But why does he tell his story? He tells his story to tell the story. You have a story. I have a story. It's stories that need to be told. Um, these are stories that need to be told. I, I remember at, in fifth grade, fifth grade, who does this? But I remember when I was in fifth grade, which would have made me, what, about 11 years old or so, um, really wanting to follow God, really wanting to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it was 1968. It was San Antonio, Texas. The whole country seemed to be on fire a lot, like what it is right now in some places. Um, and uh, I, really, I really wanted to turn to the Lord. And so I read a book called The Cross and the Switchblade about Nikki Cruz and, and um, David Wilkinson and the, uh, the, the ministry to the inner city of the 60s and the difference that Jesus was making with people of faith. Um, and I wrote off to Billy Graham Ministries. He sent me, uh, they, they sent me cards. They sent me a, 
a, a good news for modern man, <laughs> a paperback version of the Bible, later the NIV, the great news uh, for modern man, uh, the initial NIV New Testaments, and I read those things, and I memorized scriptures such as Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, John 3.16, 1 John 1.7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, uh, there's no temptation overtaking you, but such as is common to humanity. But God is faithful uh, and he will not give you more than what you are able to bear, but will, with the temptation, uh, offer up a way of escape, a way out so that you can stand up underneath it. I, I remember those verses. Um, uh, other verses, such as 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, that talk about how if we confess our sins, uh, He is faithful and just and righteous and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, verse 9, but if we say we haven't sinned, then we're lying and we're calling God a liar because He says we are. Um, all of those verses were a part of my story in fifth grade, 11 years old. Started going to the Protestant chapel. My dad, a career Air Force man, uh, he, uh, he wasn't that much interested in church. Uh, my mother had a Church of Christ background, but she hadn't been going to church and had married my dad. Uh, and I uh, had had my brother from a previous marriage, and uh, he was nine years older than I am and, and just turned 72, by the way. <laughs> and uh, happy birthday, Wayne. Uh, but his father passed away. He died in a boating accident. And then a, a couple of years later, our mom married my dad, had my sister, and then me three years later in 1957. And, and so uh, we hadn't been going to church, but we were going to a Protestant chapel some. So I dove in with both feet. I mean, I was, I was excited. I went to retreats. I was a member of the Protestant Youth of the Chapel, the PYOC. I went to vacation Bible school on those big blue Air Force buses uh, back in the uh, 60s and early 70s and, and had the cookies and the red Kool-Aid. I mean, I did it all. I did it all. Um, but then I had some friends of mine when I was in ninth grade, now a freshman in high school. This would be in 1972, uh, 71, 72. I, I, um, I noticed that some of my friends at the chapel when we had communion, which wasn't very often, they would take it. And I never did. My mom said no. And I asked her about it. And she said, well, you need to be baptized if you're going to do that. Those good old Church of Christ roots kicked in. Um, she from East Texas, Southeast Texas in the Jasper area, her siblings, her sisters and her brother, I believe, were baptized by John Stevens, who before World War II uh, had been at, in Jasper uh, in ministry. And then when Pearl Harbor was attacked, like so many other brave, brave Americans of that generation, uh, uh, went into the service to defend our, our liberty and the liberty and freedom of others. And um, what a great sacrifice that was. She and her siblings were baptized. And so now she begins to say, well, you know, you're, you need to be baptized first. Well, you know, I've been swimming all my life. I dive off the high diving board at the, at the pool on base. I'm, I'm fine with that. I said, okay, uh, that's fine. And she says, well, let's get some teaching. So we end up at the Lackland Terrace Church of Christ on a Sunday afternoon in March 1972 and with the wonderful, amazing, incredible Ronnie Clayton um, who meets us there in the afternoon so that he can show us a couple of film strips, talk to us about Jesus, about the Bible, about God's Word, about the response of faith. And that evening uh, in March of 1972 at that Sunday night church service, 
Uh, I was baptized, my sister Alice was baptized, my father was baptized, and my mother was restored. Uh, and that night, after church, after we were baptized, a lot of the youth group came up to us. My sister, a senior, me, a freshman in high school, they said, hey, we're having a devotional tonight at, at the home of uh, one of our elders, Mac Barty. Russ uh, Barty uh, was a senior that year in high school. And, uh, and they said, you want to come? And we said, sure. So we did. And at the, later they uh, said, hey, we're going on a mission trip to Westlaco, Texas, and we'll be going doing some work uh, in Mexico as well. Y'all want to come? We said, sure. <laughs> and it's been that way ever since. And what a great blessing it has been. What a wonderful thing it has been. And that was the only time that I can ever remember my dad not drinking alcohol for an extended period of time. Unfortunately, uh, he went back to it, and um, less than a year later, in February of 1973, uh, my parents were divorced, and then um, a little, about a year and a half later, uh, in uh, September of 1974, during my senior year of high school, uh, my mother died suddenly, unexpectedly, of a, of a massive heart attack. Um, I, my dad couldn't take me. I wouldn't have wanted to go to him at that time anyway. Um, I didn't want to leave San Antonio. I was a senior in high school. I loved it. I loved band. I loved everything. These were my friends I'd had since I was in seventh grade, some longer than that, at Royal Gate Elementary in San Antonio. And so I stayed with uh, three different families over the next several months until I went to Oklahoma Christian College in the fall of 1975 um, with Ronnie and his family. Uh, the one, Ronnie and Karen Clayton and their three boys, they still blame me for Greg picking up drums while I was there. Sorry, um, uh, a wonderful deacon and his family, uh, Ron Toothman, Ron and Martha, they were uh, the parents of my best friend, Gary Toothman, who is still a Facebook friend um, and was a wonderful friend to me during that time. There with me on the night my mother died, celebrating his 18th birthday. Um, and then um, a, a single man, uh, Gary Burford, a wonderful member of the church in San Antonio, very faithful man, 30-year-old bachelor, later married, had some boys, and um, opened up his apartment, his home, to me. This, this boy, he was the one that took me to buy uh, uh, a, a nice black sport coat and uh, a nice black pair of dress pants and shoes and a white pinstripe uh, shirt and a black tie to wear to my mother's um, funeral services in 1974. That's the kind of people that I was around at the Lackland Terrace Church of Christ. And what a blessing it, it was. Um, uh, a month after uh, she passed away, I met, well, actually I'd known, but I started dating this beautiful, beautiful, really cute uh, twirler from South Sand that I'd known since seventh grade, Joyce Long, and that one stuck. Uh, that one stuck, and we studied together with Ronnie. She was later baptized, and um, and then we went to Oklahoma Christian uh, together, um, married two years later, uh, have had two amazing, incredible daughters uh, who have now married incredible, wonderful, amazing men, and have given us four amazingly beautiful, super smart, incredibly gifted grandchildren. Um, that's Bill's story. Didn't take very long, did it? It comes out really easy uh, when you when you tell your own story. And that's what you need to be able to do. Have you done that? Have you told your story? Have you told your story to your your children? Have you told your story to um, your friends, your grandchildren, others that need to hear it? 
I, granted, we need to know where to find the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul in Acts 9 and Acts 22, uh, or those Samaritans in Acts 8, or those on Pentecost in Acts 2. Yeah, you need to find that. But you can start or come back to your story and tell about the ones that influenced you, that impacted you. For me, it was my mother and um, others who had moved me and encouraged me, and then those wonderful members at, at Lackland Terrace in San Antonio who groomed me and, and, and helped me and gave me the opportunity to serve and to lead singing and to give devotionals at the youth group devotional and to ultimately actually do a sermon when we went to El Dorado, Texas. And I preached my first sermon. It was on the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah ran from God. Jonah ran to God. Jonah ran for God. Um, I had about, you know, 25 pages of notes, and the sermon probably lasted eight minutes or something. I know, I know, all you West Irwin people are saying, we should be so lucky. Yeah, right, right, right. But it was such a great, great blessing. And now what are we doing to help others have that very same experience? What are you doing to help others that you're close to, that you have the opportunity to be around? What are you doing to help them know your story? You say, Bill, I don't know that I could ever tell my story. Sure you can. Sure you can. Here's how. Three, three points. All you need. Number one, what was your life like before Jesus? Before you began to believe in him? Before you became a Christian? Number two, how did you become a Christian? Who were the people that especially influenced you? What was it that made you want to turn uh, to Christ? Tell them about your baptism. Tell them about, just like I did that Sunday night after Bible studies and the fundamentals of the faith film strips, being baptized that night in March of 1972. You have a story like that. Maybe it's in a church baptistry on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's in a river at, at, uh, at uh, a retreat. Maybe it's in a pool at camp. Whatever it might be, you have a story. Uh, you can tell them about that conversion experience, about when you realized that you were a sinner and when you realized that Jesus not just didn't just die for everybody, he died for you. And realized that what he called on you to do as part of the response of faith was to believe in him, trust him, and to repent, to change your life, to quit living for yourself, and to start living for, for Jesus. You won't do it flawlessly. You'll still have sins. You'll still have places where you fail. Um, but that's your purpose now. Uh, you've changed from living for yourself to living for God, uh, confessing that faith so that other people will know it and then being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You can tell that story, and then you can say, well, here's what's happened to me since then. Here's how Jesus changed my life. And as you do that, you can smile, and you can tell them and look deep in their eyes, and with a very genuine, sincere heart, you can tell them, and I want this for you. I want you to have your life changed. I want you to know this Jesus. Paul says he's the worst of sinners. I beg to differ. I think I've got that job. But you know what? Jesus loved me, and he forgave me because I turned to him in faith. And I came up out of that water. As, just as Romans 6 says, I died to sin. I was buried with Christ through baptism into death, and I was raised to live a new life. And I've been living that life ever since. Perfectly, far from it. Sinlessly, no way. Faithfully, continuing to hold on to him, continuing to trust him, absolutely. That's the story that Paul told. 
in Acts 22. That's the story that I have and so many others. And that's the story that you can tell as well. Just as easily as I did, just as easily as Paul did, you can tell your story. And I hope you will. Find someone that you can tell that story to. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your grandkids. Maybe it's a friend from work who's going through a hard time. Or maybe it's a friend from church that just needs some encouragement. And you might say, Bill, how do, I, how do I get that conversation started? It is really, really hard. I mean, you have to be very creative. You have to come up with something like, oh, I don't know. Did I ever tell you how I became a Christian? That's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. People used to say, you need to have an elevator talk, a little short uh, speech about what, what's important to you that you can tell someone that you have the opportunity while you're on the elevator for a few floors with them. And granted, maybe you do need a short version of your story, but you need the Acts 22 version too. You need to be able to tell them just like Paul did, just like I did. Here's, here's where I was living, and then... Jesus came into my life. And here's how I responded in faith to him. And you can respond the same way. Because here's how he has been with me every step of the way ever since. And that's what I want for you. I hope and pray that this will help you think about that wonderful moment when you became a Christian. When you gave your life to Jesus Christ and obeyed that wonderful message of dying to sin, being buried with Christ through baptism into death, and being raised to live a new life. I pray, I pray that you will be ready and willing to share that story. May God bless us all towards that.